We're going to be jumping into Ezra, the last two chapters, finishing a series that we've been doing on the book of Ezra. One note, I saw the advertisement for Men's No Regrets Conference. We go to that every year. It's fantastic, and uh, we do still have some sign-ups available. And, uh, and boys are welcome, too. So dads, sign up your boy. Bring him along. It'll be a fun time for you both. So We're going to jump right in. Ezra, chapter 9, chapter 10, a little bit of review. Uh, 1986, uh, thereabouts, uh, Babylon uh, took the nation of Judah into captivity. And that was according to uh, prophecy. Um, and when they went into captivity, the prophet Jeremiah said, you're going to be in captivity for 70 years, at which time God is going to make a way for you to return back to your homeland, back to Judea, back to Jerusalem, uh, rebuild the temple. Uh, Isaiah also prophesied of this happening back in around 800 BC, saying that um, a guy by the name of Cyrus without being bribed and without personal gain, is going to allow uh, you to return and rebuild a temple. And, uh, and that is exactly what happened. Um, and so in 538 BC, Zerubbabel, uh, King, uh, King Cyrus of Persia, signs an edict. And we looked at some, um, I don't have the picture today, archaeology, some artifacts that actually have King Cyrus's edicts of allowing uh, the people to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple, which is pretty neat. But um, that happens. Zerubbabel leads back about 50,000 people, um, Jews, back to that area, and they resettle. Um, they start rebuilding the temple, and um, they're stopped. Uh, they face all kinds of adversity, and uh, the people around them that have already settled there, they're not keen on the Jews coming back to that area. And so uh, there's a lot of resistance, a lot of threats, a lot of uh, false friendships uh, in, in looking to undermine uh, what's going on in the building of the temple. Um, and finally, under the reign of Artaxerxes, uh, these, these people are writing back <coughs> uh, to Persia, uh, Babylon, Persia, and Artaxerxes writes and tells them that they have to cease construction, and then by arms, they're forced to do so. And so work halts, and, um, and after a time... Um, the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, you can read their letters in the Old Testament, but they encouraged Zerubbabel and Jeshua to start building again. Uh, they haven't received permission yet, but, but they were encouraging them to continue by faith in building the temple. And um, God had stirred their hearts to return. God had stirred their hearts to build the temple. Um, God had stirred Haggai and Zechariah to give encouragement. And, and so they start doing so. They face more ridicule. There's another letter that goes back, but surprise, surprise, then King Darius says, yes, they can rebuild the temple, and, and you other nations around there are to foot the bill for that. And so, so the temple is completed, and um, it's around chapter 7 that we're introduced to Ezra. Ezra is still living uh, in the Persian Empire, and uh, he is uh, a Levite. He's from the Arianic line. So Aaron, Moses, they were brothers. Moses, they were Levites from the tribe of Levi. You tr track that line all the way down. Ezra was a Levite. And it says that he studied the word of God. He obeyed the word of God. And he taught the word of God. And he was commissioned to go back. And he took about 5,000 people with him back to uh, Jerusalem to meet up with the people that had already settled there, already built the temple. He was to go back and bring spiritual renewal to the people there and teach them the ways of God uh, according to uh, their scriptures. So 
he gets there, um, and they, they make awesome time in, in returning, and, uh, and that's where we pick up today, because um, we're going to see what happens when he arrives, and what he has to deal with at that point in time. Before we do so, I just want to call us back to Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4. And this was the time of Moses, so this is a thousand years prior, thereabouts, when the Israelites, the Hebrew people, Jewish people, they came out of slavery, out of Egypt. They resettled in the promised land. But en route there, they're given the Ten Commandments, and, um, and God gives them other specific um, instructions of how they are to live, how they are to be. My kids asked me last night, they said, why did God pick um, the Hebrew people? Uh, why, why did they pick the Jewish people? Why not some other people or some other place on earth? And I said, actually, the Bible tells us exactly why he did that in a few different places. And a summarized explanation of that is, one, he picked them because they were so small. In fact, he took them out of um, he took them out of Egypt, which was a huge nation, and then they overthrew seven kingdoms, all of which were bigger than them, in the promised land. And God did that for two reasons. One, he wanted to pick a people group whereby he was going to educate the rest of the world on his value system. So all of the pagan nations, they would worship foreign gods. They would uh, practice... Um, superstition, demonic magic. They would sacrifice their own children in fires, all kinds of stuff. And God said, I, wanna, I want to show the world what my value system looks like. And so he gives the Ten Commandments and he uses this little peon group of people. He parts the Red Sea for them. He feeds them with manna in the wilderness. He goes before them and these huge wicked empires fall to this little people and everybody in the world takes notice of who they only serve one God and what are his standards? Not cheating, not lying, not dishonoring parents, not killing, not. And they're seeing this, this list of 10 commandments and they're recognizing God is, is raising a holiness standard. And he's saying, this is what my, this is the kingdom of heaven is pure and it's holy and it's full of love and joy and peace and all these things. And so, did the Hebrew people walk in and obey all those commands? Not very well. <clears throat> but it didn't matter because it still showed God's power was showing through them. And even through their disobedience, we were reminded that there is a standard, a holiness standard that exists that the Jewish people couldn't live up to. Nor can we. Nor can we be perfect. But it, it gave us a picture of what God's kingdom is like and of what he's like and his character and his value system. So here's, here's, an, here's a piece of instruction. He says, uh, Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 through 4, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And these seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them. Show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. So a unique time in history 
they were supposed to wipe out these wicked nations that had God had been patient with for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But he said, now, don't intermarry with them. Don't try to accept their ways. I, I'm showing, I'm doing something on purpose and with purpose. And in time, there's going to be a savior that comes to save all people, all people who turn to him, all people of humble hearts. And, um, but at this point in time, they were given specific instructions. Don't do this because they will lead your children away to worship other gods. So they had that up front. They weren't even there yet. And he gives them the instruction. They get there and what happens is they compromise over and over and over again. God's patient with them. He sends prophets. He sends judges. He sends people to help them and remind them, no, 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 don't live. Don't try to be like everybody around you. But number one in your notes, be separate. Be separate from them. Instead of worshiping false God, worship me alone. First commandment. Have no other gods before me. And all of these other, all of these other um, distinguishers. And so they were supposed to live differently, look differently, have a different faith, and so forth. And that's where we pick up. So because they continually turned away from God, God said, this, was, this will lead to you being exiled. If you, if you intermarry and all this stuff and you start worshiping foreign gods, and, and that's what happened. And pretty soon they rejected the God of heaven and they looked and they lived just like all the other nations and God allowed for them to go into captivity in hopes that and knowing that they would recognize their sin and their error. And they would again turn to God and they would say, God, we're wrong. We're sorry. We're stupid. <laughs> Have mercy on us. And then his intention was to heal them and bring them back and to plant them again. That's what's happening in Ezra. They're back. They're being planted. They're growing. Um, the temple's rebuilt. And Ezra gets there. And now he's informed that Ezra 9, verses 1 and 2, he was spoken of by the leaders there. And it says, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and Levites have not kept themselves separate from the other peoples living in the land. They've taken up the detestable practices. For the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. And worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. The very reason that they went into exile, they come back by God's mercies. And what is happening just a few decades into it? Oh, no. Again, the people had not yet rejected God, right? They didn't say, oh, we don't believe in God. We don't worship. No, but they were beginning to disobey his instructions for their lives. And maybe they didn't think, you know, that sin was too big of a deal. They didn't understand the implications. I thought immediately of growing up in the Black Hills of South Dakota, where we'd be on some hikes and my brother and I would see, oh man, that looks like a pretty big mountain. Let's climb, let's climb that one. And we would see that it didn't look too hard, but there was all these pine needles on it. And so we start ascending and we're just slipping and slipping. And there was one particular cliff. I remember this in my mind. I thought, man, that, like, there were some boulders on the bottom and then, and then kind of a hill into a cliff thing. And we thought, I think we can climb that. Let's do it. And we're both very young. And um, my brother was wearing cowboy boots. And we weren't cowboys at all, but he was wearing cowboy boots. And we're getting up there, and, and it is hard. 
And all of a sudden we're up there and I'm like, oh man, my whole body's shaking. I'm, I'm not wanting to fall down. My brother's four years younger than I. I don't know how he's surviving. And, um, and so he's crying. I'm crying on the cliff and we're trying to get up over the top and we don't know how to go back down because that seems more difficult too. And, um, and somehow we made it to live, live another day. But that was, it seemed, it's not that big a deal, not too hard. And boy, were we wrong and it almost cost us. I think about um, a pipe that has a little leak in it and a little pinhole. Hey, hey, no big deal. It's a little pinhole. Most of the water is getting where it's supposed to go, right? <laughs> but left unchecked, this causes catastrophic damage. And then thinking about the enemy of our soul, he's not going to come to us and say, hey, reject God, curse, curse Jesus. Uh, he's not going to do that because we wouldn't do that. But he will take us down a trail, and that trail of sin will lead us away from God and away from faith. And I remember even as a youth pastor for a long time, seeing kids that loved Jesus but thought that it was fine and no big deal to dabble with sin or hang out with certain crowds. And without a repentance or an understanding or a confession or a change of mind, it was usually one or two years, sometimes three or four, before they didn't even believe in God and they didn't believe in Jesus anymore. It's a slippery slope, um, subpoint, slipping into sin. Little sins are innocent enough and we can justify them but little sins can sabotage what might have been. We think we know when to quit or when to stop. We think we know how many drinks are too much. We know when gambling becomes a problem. We think being cordial is okay, and then it turns into flirting. Or We know the difference between negotiating and swindling. There's all these fine lines that are kind of hard in the moment to recognize yeah. until we're maybe too far. So, um, so anyway... Um, along with that instruction in Deuteronomy, it's just a couple chapters further, it's still during the time of Moses, when uh, there was additional instruction given for how the kings of Israel were to operate. They didn't even have kings at this time. They didn't even have a king. They, they were led by Moses and then by a series of judges. But God said this, look at this, Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20, he says, the king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself. That's interesting. Or send people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this book of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him, read it daily, as long as he lives. He's supposed to do it every day. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So God went out of his way to make things really clear, really up front, before they entered the promised land, before they even had a king, put it right there out in front of them. And yet, when 
Solomon came on the scene. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, accumulated large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. His wives turned his heart away from the Lord, and his riches clouded his perspective. Just like that. Uh, application for us. We, in this room, we're not returning to Judah. You know, not, not any of us are kings that I know of in the sense of over a nation on earth here. Um, but still the application of separating ourselves does exist. Our context is a little different. Um, but let's look at this here. Clarify, clarification. There is a big difference between influencing and being influenced by. We're actually told in Scripture to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and teach people God's ways and so forth. We're told that we're the salt and light in the city on a hill and so that we're supposed to be influential in helping people know God and grow in their faith and be equipped for every good work. And at the same time, we're not to be influenced by the world in that we're not supposed to team up in, in... in ways with unbelievers. Look at 2 Corinthians 6. It says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them. And walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourself from them, says the Lord. Do not touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you. Don't touch their filthy things. I don't know if that includes gossip. Not to touch gossip. We're not supposed to do gossip. Greed, that's not supposed to be us. Foul language, drugs, strong drink, inappropriate images, stealing, cheating... Don't touch their filth. Don't team up with unequally yoked. The friends you keep will influence you. Uh, It says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. We shouldn't minimize the effects or the errors of sinful practices. We shouldn't look to minimize and excuse them. We should, number two, be shocked Shocked. Not shocked that unbelievers do such things. Of course they do. They don't know God. Of course they're going to live differently. They don't know better. We shouldn't be shocked that even we ourselves or people that we know will slip into sin, but we should be shocked if we and our people should ever embrace and condone and promote such lifestyles that God has clearly forbidden. This is how Ezra reacts in verses 3 and 4. He gets back there. there, He's told of these things about the intermarrying going on. Um, And when he heard this, verse 3, I tore my clothes and my shirt. I pulled a hair from my head and beard. And I sat down utterly shocked. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. There's that term there, all who tremble at the word of God. Those that base their life upon God's word, 
all who trembled at the word of God reacted in the same way as Ezra right there. Because they esteemed God's ways and his kingdoms and his instructions. And so they were likewise shocked. All true Christians should similarly have something within them rise up and their spirit should be grieved by such actions. We should not be okay with sin in the camp or unconfessed or, or that sin which is embraced and condoned and encouraged or promoted. That should just shock us. We should take sin seriously. Yeah. It's interesting um, how we become desensitized. Over time, uh, we don't even notice the slow demise taking place. Things that were once considered abominations in our culture are now just uh, normalized, commonplace. Uh, some reasons for this may be prayer getting taken out of school, um, the Bible being um, undermined, uh, rejected as the ultimate authority. And so all issues then regarding origin and meaning and morality and destiny are all subjective. And everybody just floats around and there's no underpinning, no strong foundation to actually support anything. There was a movie uh, in 2002 very corny movie, right? Very B-roll uh, actors, C-roll, D-roll actors. Um, but the message, wow, it got my attention because it was called Time Changer. I think it's still, I think you can watch it online for free. Um, <laughs> but there was a part, so the idea here is some, some professor from 1890 was... Um, in a seminary and he was working on a paper he wanted the college to or the seminary to help publish his paper or sign their endorsement of it. And uh, I'm not gonna tell you the whole plot. Anyway, he has a chance to go into the future. And when he goes into the future uh, to modern day 2000 something, um, he sees um, there's lots of, he, he's just abhorred by different things. And one thing is he goes to the movie theater and it shows him like sitting down in the movie theater and he of course looks a little awkward with everybody else and he has his, his tall hat on and he's like dressed in a suit which was normal to wear in his profession. And he's watching and then the next scene it just flashes straight to the commons area with the food concessions and the workers and different people out there. He comes running into that. You'd think there was a fire or a shooting going on or something and he goes, stop the movie! Stop the movie! Someone, someone took God's name in vain! And he was just shaking and he, and he was saying, someone blasphemed the name of God. And everybody's looking at him like, who is the crazy man? But the disconnect of time and when people drift from God, how what once was recognized and accepted becomes diluted and compromised. And Ezra, he was shocked when he saw what he saw, and he responded in that manner. Now, Ezra was given power, right? He had authority um, governmentally. He was given authority to go back and rule the people there, all right? So maybe a little different situation that we don't command and make people do what we want them to do. But that was actually what he was supposed to do. He was their president of sorts at that time, coming to lead the people. And, and this is what we see. He doesn't stop at being shocked. But number three in your notes, he owns 
the situation. Ezra could have said, wow, you, you guys are on your own. I am going back to Persia. Or he could, he could have just, I don't know. It, it reminded me of um, when James and John were walking with Jesus in the New Testament. And Jesus comes, he's, they're going to go through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem. And the people of Samaria, they're not going to accept him. They say, they don't want, they don't, we don't want you coming through here. And James and John say, Jesus, should we call down fire on them and destroy them? And Jesus said, nope, that's not my, no, that's not what we're going to do. <laughs> and I thought, Ezra, he could have, he could have said, look at those people, look at what they're, and, but no, look at this. In the next passage right here, he says, verse five, at the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I had sat in mourning with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees and I lifted up my hands to the Lord, my God, and I prayed, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you for our sins. What do you mean, Ezra? It's their sins. It's not your sin. It's their sin. No, he says, for our sins have piled higher than our, than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. And he continues that prayer all the way down. You get down to verse 10. He says, for once again, we have abandoned your commands. And he continues even after that. It's a long prayer. You can read the entirety of it. But he gets down in the hole with them and he intercedes for them and he confesses sin. Much like Moses in Deuteronomy 32, look at this, these verses. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They've made gods of gold for themselves, but now if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record that you have written. He's like putting himself down in there. He says he's interceding for them. Instead of casting them off and to hell with you. No, he is interceding with them. He's with them. Look at this. Daniel 9, 4 through 19. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, oh Lord, you are great and awesome God. You will always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we, puts himself in there, we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets who spoke of your authority to your kings, princes, ancestors, to all the people of the land. Verse 18, oh my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea, not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy calling on God in his mercy. Nehemiah was a counterpart with, um, a contemporary with Ezra. And right where Ezra ends is, is kind of the same period where Ezra, uh, Nehemiah is also happening and continuing. So you can go right into Nehemiah if you want to continue this part of history. Nehemiah said in verse uh, four of chapter one, when I heard this, he'd heard of, of the walls being in disrepair and, and, and things not going well in Jerusalem. I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. That's kind of the shocked part. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commandments. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and decrees and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. 
So instead of a we versus them mentality in culture, it is, I am going to pray earnestly for them. At what point are we to stop praying earnestly for someone or for our culture or for our leaders? When do we stop praying for them? Identifying with, we, taking responsibility for, getting down in the pit with and interceding for, allowing one's heart to care and to become involved. Moses did that, Daniel did that, Nehemiah did that, Ezra is doing that right now. Well, it doesn't affect me. Too bad for them. I'll watch out for myself and they're on their own. I'm fed up with them. I'm checking out. I don't need that burden. Maybe God wants to step in, wants someone to step in and intercede. And maybe God wants, maybe God wants someone like Paul who's praying day and night for the church and writing them letters. Maybe we need to ask God for a passion for someone or some group of people. The people that we hate and we talk about every day. Maybe we need to have a passion. God gives a passion and we need to identify with and pray and confess and repent on behalf of and intercede for. Because Jesus came to die for them. I think of, we just talked about the sanctity of life. There's a lot of people since Roe v. Wade happened that have been interceding and praying and grouping and working toward and identifying with and praying for a change in that, that life would be honored and, and uh, so forth. But um, we need to wrap up. This is where we'll wrap up for today. Um, Subpoint there is say sorry. As Ezra repented, praying, confessing, weeping, and bowing down before God, we read in chapter 10, verse 1, that a large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly, coming to terms with their sin. So uh, we'll pick up there again probably next month at 2 Corinthians, um, not 2 Corinthians, the end of um, chapter 10, chapter 10 of Ezra. But um, challenge for us today, one is to be separate, separate from culture. We're not to look like them. We're to influence, not be influenced by, we learn from scripture. Uh, we should be shocked and we should, we need, if we've been desensitized, and we all have, self-included, Ask God to renew an eye for holiness and purity in our hearts and in our minds and with our families and what we consume and how we go about life. Um, and then it's not we versus them, but it's interceding for those around us and looking to say, God, stir a passion in my heart for these people. Because right now I just hate them. Right now I'm just very annoyed and they're so stupid. But no, God... Do something in my heart. Change it because Daniel lived with stupid people. Ezra did too. You know, sometimes we're stupid. So the grace of God to flow through us. Boy, we need help because God said, Jesus said, in the end times, the love of many will grow cold. 
The love of many is going to grow cold. We're going to be easily annoyed. We're going to lack grace. We're going to lack patience. Lord, let that not be us, Lord. Help us, God. Maybe we need to repent before God. Say, God, my heart is out of whack. I need a, need a heart transplant, Lord, because it's not, it doesn't act and feel like Jesus did with people. God, we pray this morning. Um, we thank you for your word, Lord. It's, it's perfect, Lord, for us. It cuts right to our heart. And uh, we need help, Lord. I need help. I think a lot of us may be out of sorts in this matter and how we go about things and how we speak and what we do. Uh, yes, Lord, we are to recognize sin and, and, and separate ourselves. We thank you for your grace in our life, for your forgiveness each day, your mercies, uh, as we look to grow in you and learn your ways and be obedient. God, will you fill us with your grace and mercy for the people around us and, uh, and that this would continue past the next two minutes, Lord, but into the weeks and months to come that your Holy Spirit would start reminding us on a daily basis and, and working in our heart, Lord, to change it, Lord, and renew it. A lot of our hearts are filthy, Lord. We're sorry. Forgive us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.